Welcome to The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHUS stores at the top of the hour. I'm your host, Bill Trofeski, and for more, be sure to go to podcasttheway.com. Again, podcasttheway.com. Follow on Twitter, Instagram, social media. Okay, now that that's out of the way, how's it going today, Christina? Good, good. How's it going for you? You've got a whole bunch of snow out there, I, I, I see. Yep, got a nice little workout, shoveling the parking lot, all that. <laughs> <laughs> fun, fun, winter fun, you know? <laughs> yep, when you're cooped up so much, it definitely makes you realize how out of shape you are. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I bet. Yeah. But it helped out. And um, how about for you? Where are you located? Well, right now I'm in Santa Monica, California, which is right next to L.A., sort of a suburb of, of Los Angeles, so I'm about a mile from the Pacific Ocean. So it doesn't get too cold here, or today's actually sort of cold for, for Southern California winter, about 60 degrees, high 50s maybe. Um, but it's sunny and it hasn't rained here in months. I mean, it just never rains here. It's just, just amazing. Well, that's good to hear. In the future, one of the places I'm looking to move is California. California, Boston, New York City. All very expensive <laughs> cities, mind you. That's true, too. Expensive <laughs> places. Then everybody says you make more money, and that's true, but then you spend more money. So Yeah, yeah. It's all, it, it kind of evens out in the end, but uh, yeah. But they're all, you know, happening places. I, I went to college in Boston. I went to Boston University, so I, it's a great town. And oh, nice. uh, I grew up in, I went to high school in New Jer- northern New Jersey, next to about a half an hour from Manhattan, New York. So, you know, can't be that world, world city, uh, New York City. And now I'm in L.A. So Nice. So, Boston okay. University was one of those colleges I was looking at. And you guys are surrounded by, like, all of those other Boston colleges, which mm-hmm. really tempted me. But... The thing I didn't like was the campus. It was very, you know, it's very urban. spread out through the city. Yeah, it's very urban and it's very, you know, it's not a campus per se. It's just sort of part of the city kind of thing. It's just an area that's a lot of BU buildings, you know. It's not yeah. a, a, a traditional campus. So I ended up in the University of Connecticut, very out in the middle of nowhere. But let's get into today's topic. Speaking of places and places to live and whatnot. You were out in Venezuela for seven years, was it? Uh, I was, uh, yeah, I moved, uh, I lived, uh, I started my career in, as I said, I went to BU, and then I went to New, came back to uh, New Jersey, and I worked at newspapers, in local newspapers in New Jersey for about five years, and I got bored, and so I went traveling, quit my job, and um, I went to Spain first, taught English for a year, I wasn't sure if I'd go back to journalism but then I went to Guatemala, and I did get back into journalism for a, an eccentric American uh, woman ran a, a little English language weekly newspaper called the Guatemala News, and I got a job there and got back into covering really cool stories. And then uh, after about a year there, ended up in in Venezuela, where I ended up staying seven years. Well, nice. The newspaper part on a completely different subject. I remember reading an article that. A lot of like close newspapers or like little local ones are starting to die off with uh, people getting their news through TV and everything becoming on the computers and whatnot. So hopefully- oh, totally. Yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate, but yeah, it's just completely, the internet has just completely destroyed it. Um, and it's great because you can access like anything now. Like I can look at any article here and there. 
but then then a lot of people see fake news spread stuff like that it just becomes you gotta know yeah, how that's to a whole it. other angle right exactly the whole uh, misinformation stuff but you know that the challenge has been how to monetize uh, news on the internet because there's so much available for free that people don't pay for it. and that's that sort of was the downfall of newspapers um, you know they just became uh, financially unsustainable so it's it's a steadily shrinking field, unfortunately, because but it was a great career and a great job, and I'm I'm so happy I uh, went into in, into journalism. I, I still think it's a great career. Nice. And have you um so after leaving the newspaper and living in Guatemala, have you uh, written for anyone else recently, or what have you been? Before we talk about what we're talking about today, what uh, other newspapers have you gone into or? Um, what happened, I, I was working for local papers in, in New Jersey <clears throat> as a reporter and editor. And then, as I said, and then when I got to Caracas, I worked as a, a sort of a freelance foreign correspondent. They call them stringers. And uh, I worked for Time Magazine, Business Week, um, New York Times. I wrote a lot for the Miami Herald, Houston Chronicle, uh, Financial Times, Sunday Times of London. And just a whole bunch of other smaller, uh, you know, a magazine called Latin Trade, um, business, a lot of business um, sort of industry type publications online and off, you know, uh, uh, hard copy, um, which, you know, weren't the most exciting things, writing about the Venezuelan coffee industry, but they always paid very well. <laughs> but, uh, and then after I left Venezuela in 2002, after the coup, um, I'm, I was a reporter at the Miami Herald for five years, and then I came to LA and I worked for the Associated Press here for five years. And now I kind of freelance, I write uh, fiction, and I do a lot of corporate, like freelance stuff, which isn't very exciting, but it pays well. And, um, and then it leaves me time to do you know, my passion, which is writing novels. And, uh, I write a lot of personal essays, that kind of stuff. Sounds good, sounds like you enjoy writing. <laughs> Yeah, it's always been my pet. Ever since I was, you know, ever since I can remember, I wanted to be a writer. Nice. Journalists, they always dive in on their topics. They, like, you spent years on your topics. So I like to think of you as almost an expert in your field. And then podcasters get to sort of take little bits here and there and then share mm -hmm. it to our field. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or like a translator. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because, you, you know, when you cover something as a journalist, you really have to... Um, <clears throat> It's your, you know, quote unquote beat, they call it. Uh, you do become kind of expert in that, that particular area. And that's one thing I, I really loved about journalism is that you became kind of an expert of, uh, you know, you had a lot of, um, a little bit of knowledge about a lot of things, you know, because <laughs> you had to kind of bone up every time you wrote about a different thing. You'd have to find out the context, the history, who to call, you know, find out what was going on. So it was just something I always loved about journalism was just the variety of things that you were always um, writing about and lear learning about. It was always a, a learning experience. Yep, same here. I love uh, I love what I'm doing because I get to learn about all different topics from like death row to now 2002, Venezuela, Coop, Chavez, like complete, mm -hmm. well, not complete different. I guess you can say that overlap. But yeah, this will be my third and final of the mini season that is Central America, South America. Followed mm -hmm. a kilo of Colombia in a, Kilo of cocaine, not kilo of Colombia. <laughs> uh, kilo of cocaine in Colombia. Followed uh, MS-13. And now, yeah, the 2002 Venezuela coup. Oh, well, Wait. that's You know, I know um, Toby Muse, the author of Kilo, and I read his book. And, um, 
Oh yeah, I he was the one I had on the show. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I saw that, and I forgot to mention that to you. Yeah, 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 because uh, you know it was a small group of journalists, foreign journalists, that covered Latin America, so we overlapped a little bit at the towards the end. But uh, yeah, it was a great book. Sounds good. Kind of like me with the History Forager, where I found you on. But all right, yeah, to get into um, 2002 Venezuela coup. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, also. Hopefully, if you're talking with them all, hopefully they say good stuff about me. But yes. that's uh, so. Wait, first I say coup. It, it's pronounced coup, right? Coup, yeah. It's actually a French word for blow. I mean, a coup d'état, a blow of state. You know, a hit against the state. So it's a, a yeah, a coup d'état. So a coup is coup d'état. So basically, it's a uprising, sort of like a revolution in a sense. Yeah, an overthrow, one would say. And in 2002, you were in Venezuela for about six and a half years at that point. What, uh, mm-hmm. what kind of, what was life like before that event happened? When I first got to, to Caracas, it was um, in 1995, and it was a very sleepy place. And Venezuela, it was a very nice place to live. Venezuelans are lovely people, very warm people. Um, there was this doddering octogenarian president there, Rafael Caldera, and, um, you know, just things were just, you know, muddled along, and it, and it was a lovely, as I said, very pleasant to live. Um, and then along came Hugo Chavez, um, who had actually uh, been imprisoned for an attempted coup in 1992. So and he tried he to overthrow the government that was in place? Yes, oh. yes. He had tried, he was on a long-term sort of mission to instill, he was actually a leftist, which is very unusual. He was a military officer, very unusually for the military. He was a left-wing guy. Uh, One of his idols and mentors was Fidel Castro in Cuba. Um, So he wanted to overthrow the, uh, in 1992, the government then and failed and uh, got thrown into prison along with all his uh, coup plotters. And then, uh, as I mentioned, this this President Caldera actually pardoned him, and he uh, he was let out of prison, and um, he started building a political movement and traveled the country just building this this political movement. He called it uh, the the, the Revolutionary Bolivarian Movement. And what his, his platform was that corruption had actually robbed the Venezuelan people. Uh, like many oil countries around the world, uh, Venezuela is rich in natural or, uh, resources and oil, natural gas, petrochemicals, uh, gold, diamond, bauxite. Um, it's got beautiful beaches where the you know tourism could be um, uh, promoted, all that sort of thing. And but 58% of the population lived in poverty, and a good chunk of them lived in extreme poverty. Um, and the country was sort of run by an elite, uh, political and uh, moneyed elite, uh, you know, a bunch of families owned most of the, the, the big businesses, that kind of thing, which is uh, sort of usual in Latin America. That, that's, you know, how, they, how Latin America is kind of structured. Aren't they the most corrupt, like, in the world? I remember hearing that with, like, the El Salvador one. They have, like, a huge issue with corruption, right? Yeah, they all do. I, I you know, I think that the, the, the only country that's, got somewhat of a better reputation is Chile. Um, but I, I, I'm not an expert in Chile and I haven't spent a lot of time there, so I don't really know, but that's always, always the one that sort of, um, you know, uh, signals, I guess, the most, uh, a little more out of that, that corrupt um, 
sort of uh, kleptocracy, you could call it, or, you know, elite uh, oligarchy, uh, kind of a, a way of running things. Um, so Chavez, being a leftist, wanted to instill sort of social justice. So in 1996, he started the, there was a presidential election coming up. He ran for president on a platform of uh, a, a peaceful revolution. He had tried the, the uh, violent revolution and, and, and didn't work in 1992. So in 1996, he was doing this peaceful revolution and it worked. He was elected by a landslide. Uh, the poor of Venezuela loved him. They saw him as one of their own. He, and they make up the majority, he, you said, like 53%. Yeah, it was, it was I think, yeah, it was exactly a huge percentage. And he came from a plain state. He was a country boy. Uh, his parents were very uh, modest uh, school teachers who do not earn much money at all in, the, in a place like Venezuela. Um, and he went into the military as his means of sort of breaking out of uh, poverty. He was an extremely well-read and um, very smart man. And he had a master's degree in political science and, and he loved political science. He read, you know, if you spoke to him, he would just go on at, at length about, you know, all kinds of political theory and stuff like that. He just loved that. Yeah, he but, was a smart man, like he knew his stuff. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he really had a great intellect. And he had, he was very charismatic. I mean, he was just a born leader. I actually had the, the good fortune to interview him twice. And it, it, I mean, it, he was just a, um, you know, everything else aside, I mean, he was just a fascinating individual. Again, I've never really met someone quite as charismatic. You just kind of like, you know, fell in the, sort of he spellbound you. <laughs> you know, it was, it's a really very rare personality type. So he was able to get people to follow him, you know, in other words, you know, he, he was definitely just a born leader. Can you tell me a little um, bit about those interviews? Like he was a charismatic guy, anything, anything big came up? Not really. The thing that I interviewed him for Time Magazine twice. Um, the thing is with him, he would just go on and on talking, talking, talking. You, you really couldn't get a question in. <laughs> so it's actually kind of a tough thing to interview him because he, he was a real talker. Um, I guess you get material though, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, and, um, but, it was, you know, again, very interesting guy. He just had an answer for everything and, and had really uh, studied political theory and, and all, you know, all kinds of systems all over the world and that kind of thing. So his thing, he was going to, he wasn't going to, he, at that point, it is very early on, he wasn't going to do the socialist route, the communist route. He wasn't going to go the capitalist American route. He was going to do, do something down the middle. Um, that's what he that's what he said. And um, anyway, so he gets elected by a landslide. Um, but very quickly, the upper classes of Venezuela who controlled uh, the media, they controlled all the big companies, um, banks, you know, all the all the big sort of the economic power of Venezuela. They were very uh, frightened of him, actually. I mean, he represented a threat to their way of life and their money. Um, they, they were afraid he was going to turn Venezuela into another Cuba. Um, and Venezuela had a good, a sizable Cuban population who had fled Cuba after the Cuban Revolution in 1959, too. So, um, so they very quickly, as he began this, this huge um, project to remake the country, um, from top to bottom. He uh, called a constituent assembly to rewrite the constitution. 
Uh, he gave new uh, rights to the indigenous groups. He was very in favor of the disenfranchised, uh, such as the, the native, um, native groups in, in Venezuela. Uh, he re wanted to, to, he rewrote the, the rules for unions, trade union, labor unions, uh, which were very corrupt. Um, just everything, you know, from fishing, fishing rights, you know, the fishing laws, uh, just laws, everything, governing everything, got a, a, a do-over. Um, so the elite did not like this because they were going to uh, lose, you know, um, they were going to lose their power. Uh, so they became very entrenched, and as time went on, it just became really a polarized um, atmosphere against the, the pro-Chavez and the anti-Chavez people who were basically poor, and the, pro uh, the, and the anti-Chavez were, were the rich, middle class and, and rich. Um, so it became extremely polarized, and um, Chavez would, he had this name for the... Um, for his opponents, the, the Los Squalidos, the Squalid Ones, very odd name, but he would call them the Squalid Ones. He had these weird little nicknames for people who didn't follow his, his project and whatnot. So anyway, this went on and, um, and then the society just grew you know, more and more polarized. And there were all these sort of rumors that you know, there was going to be a coup, there was going to be a coup. And, uh, and then, you know, the, even the military was split. There were some officers who were totally aligned with Chavez and many who weren't. Um, was this since so, his election or like close to 2002? This was getting closer to 2002 um, <laughs> because he also, it, it started actually too, because he also used the, the military for his political purposes and, um, and they didn't like that either being, you know, he, he started these, for example, he started like a um, markets for the poor people. So he would sell cut rate chicken and, you know, other staple goods, rice and what have you uh, as, from government stocks. And he would sell them at a, a subsidized price. And he used the military he used soldiers to go in and, and they would actually do the selling. So they were like, <laughs> you know, we didn't join, you know, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be, uh, you know, selling stuff at markets. And meanwhile, of course, the private sector, the business people were like, hey, you're doing us out of business. You know, we're, we're in business to make money, um, you know, it's, and you're undercutting us. So that was how he, his, his things would sort of rub different groups up the wrong way. I don't know um, too much, like, in general, like the overall history, but he kind of sounds like a good guy to me. Yeah, I mean, he was, he sort of, and he actually did do a lot for, uh, he actually did reduce poverty, um, in Venezuela, um, you know, by quite a bit. And um, he, yeah, I mean, he got people to, to for example, credit cards were only something that the middle class or people who had up means were able to obtain. You couldn't get a credit card if you were, were a working class person. He changed that. Um, he changed, you know, he made banks open up and, and give credit cards and things like that. Um, and to to regular people, you know, and that, that had never been done, uh, things like that. So he he sort of, um, yeah, and he had housing projects, you know, to build affordable housing and subsequent, you know, state housing because people lived without running water in these, what, you know, Brazil, they called favelas in, in Venezuela, just, you know, sort of homemade brick houses just on the hills, you know, they would uh, build these houses, but they weren't, um, 
there were no pipelines for running mortar, sewage, any so anything like that. You know, they would pirate electricity. Uh, they had no phone lines. Those type that so people were just mired in poverty with no way to get out of it, and that's what Chavez promised was a way out of poverty. Um, so it got very very polarized. Um, in 2002, things were getting really uh, sort of tense, and there were a lot of rumors about a coup uh, going to to happen. Now, if in Latin America, particularly. To do a coup, you need the support of the military because they're the ones who control the tanks and the guns. They've got man, you know, manpower. Um, so people wanted the, you know, the, the upper crust wanted the military to act against Chavez, but they were not going to to do anything like, you know, they didn't want to uh, pull a coup. Did so they, uh, supported anyway, him, or like because of his military history, or just well, they wanted to keep the constitutional line that they they wanted to be constitutional, mm -hmm. and they didn't want to fall into Venezuela had been a democracy since 1958, and they wanted to remain that way. You know, they were very um, they wanted to just be you know according to their purpose in the constitution, to national security, or what have you. So they were you know to their to their credit, they didn't want to get. Um, too involved, you know, as, as happens in many other Latin American countries, the military uh, gets politically involved. And he was um, uh, in the military prior, in the 1992, when he tried to do his own coup, the military yes. sat out that one too. Yes, he was a, a lieutenant colonel in a paratrooper para battalion. Yeah, that's what he was. So he wasn't able to use that influence in 92 that like he had to- Yes, he got people, yes. And then of course he did have that. It was a smallish group of um, officers that followed him. It wasn't a huge, um, and, and of course it ended in, in disaster and, and death. And that's also what made the Venezuelan military, they didn't want that again and didn't want to be blamed for that. So, um, so they were taking, you know, but you know, again, the upper crust wanted them to act. Um, this was all sort of going on in the background. Um, and then the, the push came to shove when Chavez started meddling more in the national oil company, which is called Petróleos de Venezuela, uh, one of the largest state-owned oil companies in the world. Uh, Venezuela has immense oil wealth, the largest uh, reserves outside Saudi Arabia. Um, and they had this very um, an impressive, everybody was proud in Venezuela of PDVSA, what they call PDVSA, which patrol is to Venezuela. So um, they have all this oil, where, when does the USA come into play? <laughs> yeah. That's another the, joke, because, you know. Yeah, well, that the, what had happened is the oil company, and this is what Chavez didn't like, the oil company had opened up, they had nationalized the oil industry in the 1970s, and they had kicked out all the American uh, players and foreign players, um, but notably um, Exxon, um, some of the standard, I, don't, I forget who, they were the big oil companies were all kicked out at the um, global uh, of the country. So in the late 90s, there became this move to, to get private investment back in, into Venezuela's oil industry. So there were people lining up from all over the world, um, you know, the European oil companies, American oil companies, and they were forming sort of joint partnerships with the Venezuelan company to, you know, get uh, extract very heavy crude, which is a very special technique to, to extract this. Um, it's almost like tar, actually, They're extremely heavy crude oil. 
Um, and Chavez did not like this. He did. He thought that should be for the Venezuelan people. He didn't want. He, did, he didn't want the foreign, you know, influence back in this national oil company. That was what he called the patrimony of the people. Um, so he wanted to exert more influence over the oil industry. He, he said they had too much autonomy. Uh, it was a state-controlled company, uh, but they acted like they just did their own thing. And of course, that actually is what had made them a world-class company because they were sort of above all the corruption and all the political interference that went on in many of the other Venezuelan state-owned um, companies. Um, so Chavez wanted more uh, more uh, influence in the company to get the you know to get more control of it. So one day he had a uh, Sunday morning radio show, uh, which was very popular, and uh, he would just talk for hours and entertain call. People would call in with their problems and all, all kinds of things. So one day, uh, this was late mid, mid to late April, he fired um, about a dozen top-ranking officials, uh, executives at the oil company. And it was sort of stunning. Uh, you know, he was there sitting on his, it was a radio and TV show, and I was watching the show because he would always make news. So I would I'd constantly have to, he would have to monitor. So journalists, the journalists always had to monitor that show because he would always say newsworthy things. And all of a sudden he starts firing people. Mr. So-and-so, uh, you've served 22 years with Petrolos de Venezuela. Thank you very much for your service, but you can retire now. Or and these people are just finding out watching this show. Yeah, yeah, it was just, he just fired them on national television. Uh, thanks very much, but you're fired. Don't come to work tomorrow. Uh, yeah, it was just it was just kind of amazing. It was just like this stunning thing. But of wow. course, people love this. You know, people, the, the, the pro-Chavez uh, people were just like, yeah, you know, these elite people, they make all this money, they're stealing our oil wealth. But the people, uh, the employees of the company did not like this. So they, they formed. Sorry to interrupt, yes. but did they like to serve to get fired or like, or no, were they doing they a decent just, job with what they were doing? Yeah, he, they, he just didn't. Yeah, exactly. They, they are opposed to him and uh, the government having more, more sort of meddling and, and, and into, in the oil company. They Which from that perspective, you could probably understand. Like if I was, oh yeah. Yeah. If yeah. I was running it, ad, why? Yeah, and it was and it was a big thing because you know Venezuela was very corrupt. It was all you know Venezuela had a bunch of different uh, companies, state-owned companies that controlled aluminum, for example, and these these were just filled with patronage jobs, no-show jobs. They were run by these corrupt labor unions. I mean, they were just you know really really inefficient. Um, companies, but Petróleos de Venezuela was not like that. It was run like an American company or a European company, you know, it was, it, and people were very proud of that. So they thought this was the beginning of the end. Uh, you know, now they were going to lose the, the oil company and this, um, and, you know, of course, Venezuela's prime uh, earner of, of money. Uh, so they, they called a strike and, um, Basically, they just slowed down. People didn't work, and they just slowed down the oil industry to the to the extent they could. Um, the refineries, it, it's very damaging to actually turn off a refinery. So they just slowed down production. The oil wellheads just slowed down production. Um, the dock workers wouldn't load the tankers, you know, to, to export the oil. So there were, all, there were just a growing number of tankers just anchored off the coast of Venezuela, waiting to, to load their oil, and they could not. 
because um, the workers weren't going to do it. Uh, and this went sort of, you know, got increasingly hard line uh, over a couple days. Then the private sector, the business uh, sector, sort of joined in. They think, so they thought, oh, here's our chance. We're going to call a general strike. Um, and a general strike is different. It's sort of like the opposite of like a worker's strike. And the general strike, the business owners don't open their businesses. So nobody can work <laughs> and basically shuts down the country because you have, you know, the stores don't open, companies don't open. Um, so they're taking a hit. They're losing money, but again, they nobody's are losing money. So. But yep, they thought this was worth it, and you know they had pretty good um, compliance with it. The business, you know, a lot of small business and big business went along with it, um, and you know, but each day that it went over, so then they continued it, and then they continued. I think if by the third day, you know, the business owners want to open again. They want to start selling their goods, and you know, they're losing a lot of money. So on the Thursday, they organize uh, the opponents, the Chavez, organize a march um, through, through Caracas, and it was going to end uh, in a rally, and, um, and it was an amazing thing. There were probably about 100,000 people turned out. It was just, you just filled one of the major thoroughfares um, in Caracas that day, and I went down to report on it, and... You know, people were singing and chanting and had their faces painted the national colors. You have red, yellow, and blue. And, you know, this I mean, it was just like a middle class, like upper businessmen yes. doing this. Yep. It was all the middle class, very, uh, you know, the well heeled uh, people. So they proceeded to, to launched off uh, with this, uh, this huge march that went through the city. And then they decided to carry on because it was such a success to the presidential palace. And they were going to do, just rally out there. And the, the aim was they were hopefully going to sort of get Chavez to just declare that, you know, he had lost control of the country. The country was so destabilized that he was going to resign and, you know, fly off into the night. Uh, but Chavez wasn't that kind of a guy, frankly. But anyway, so they go off uh, marching along. And, and as with, they get closer to the presidential palace, um, the, the pro-Chavez people started amassing, and uh, they were on an overpass where the the, the anti-Chavez march was coming in under sort of this overpass, and the, the pro-Chavez people were on top of them. Then all of a sudden, shots started firing and ringing out, and people would just like, you know, drop, dropping down. They were shot. Uh, all hell broke loose. There was chaos. Um, everybody was running for their lives. Um, then people started to fight back. They were throwing stones, throwing, picking up garbage cans, you know, what have you. Uh, it just turned into a huge uh, riot, basically. What side shot? Was it the military or one of the two sides? Yeah, well, this is the interesting thing. So anyway, so everybody had everybody assumed um, sort of naturally that it was the pro-Chavez people were firing on the anti-Chavez people who were just marching peacefully and chanting, you know, uh, which they were perfectly allowed to do under the uh, in Venezuela democracy. Um, so anyway, finally, the, there was a curfew call. They cleared the streets. The National Guard came out with tanks and started just clearing the streets and getting, getting control again. Chavez went on TV and called for calm, that type of stuff. Um, then, so as the night wore on, uh, then, you know, people were in, 
there were hundreds of people wounded. It turned out 19 people died. Um, so as the night wore on, we're all at home because we're under curfew. Um, we could see these generals going into the presidential palace on, on TV, you know, all because the, the TV was just full of the, you know, what had gone on. It was, everybody was just shocked. You know, how could Chavez order people, the army or the military to fire on a peaceful march? Um, yeah, this was huge for the country. Everybody's tuning into it. Yeah, exactly. This was, you know, uh, sort of this, this really shocking, uh, shocking incident. Also, wait, so before it, you go farther, were you, um, you were like living in the country. Were you actually in the marches during this or were you nearby? I was, I was at home. I had filed a story and I was following it on TV at that point. At that point, the march had gone for, way further down than, than where I lived. So I was following it on TV. And I was sort of glad I, I did follow it on TV because, it, you know, it did end up in a, in a, a riot um, and a photographer, a news photographer did get killed actually uh, that day. Um, so I'm, you know, everybody's watching this about 2 a.m. Um, the, it come, a general comes on the TV and he announces that Chavez has resigned. And this is a general that who actually was a Chavez general. You know, he was his left, left hand, right hand man, actually. Left, but right hand man, uh, this general. So everybody's in shock. Um, so we go to bed about, you know, whatever. And, and that's all he said. He has, he has resigned. So the next day, uh, I woke up early and, you know, I went outside and it was like this sort of weird sensation. Everybody, it was just like the whole city was just silent. It was like this deathly silence. Everybody had just been so shocked about the events of the previous day and then Chavez had resigned. Um, so as the day wore on, so then the opposition starts saying, hey, we won, we won, we're going to... Uh, install a new government, um, we're going to have a civilian military junta, and then call new elections. Um, so that day, and they had all these, these plans, they had, you know, planned for the, this new government all along. Um, they, sh they swore in a new president who was actually a business owner, uh, the head of the business, uh, like Chamber, National Chamber of Commerce. Oh, so the opposite uh, of Chavez. Right, exactly. And the first thing he did was dissolve Congress and the Supreme Court. So basically, which again was another really shocking move because basically he set himself up as a dictator. He had just dissolved the two, two branches of government. Um, meanwhile, uh, all this, the pro-Chavez people were like, where's number one, where's Chavez? Is, is he dead? Is he alive? Is he taken prisoner? Where, where, where is he? Just disappeared. And number two, where's the resignation letter? Where has he resigned? Uh, so the attorney general went, told a, uh, a press conference, and he said, "I this is a coup. And he called it, and he said, this is nothing but a coup. And he, and he said, according to the Constitution, if Chavez has resigned, the vice president should be president, which, you know, he was right. Um, but, you know, the opposition was just so, you know, in, enthralled that, they, that Chavez had resigned. Um, the Bush government in Washington immediately recognized this new government, uh, so on and so forth. But meanwhile, people were getting, the pro-Chavez people were really like, you know, what the hell's going on? And looting started and, you know, riots started. There were hot tires burning in streets, the cars set on fire, businesses, you know, broken into. Um, 
people were started to gather at the local, um, the, there was a military base just south of Caracas there and, and yelling at the military, where's Chavez, where's Chavez, where's Chavez? Yeah. And um, so this went on um, into Saturday. Meanwhile, there was sort of this really ugly side of sort of vengeance of the winners, you know, and, and the elite people were running around. They gathered outside the Cuban embassy and they wanted the, and the Cuban diplomats were hiding inside, you know, and they were climbing over the wall. They wanted those Cubans out. They wanted them out of Venezuela. And, you know, they were trying to cut off the, the electricity kids, electricity and water to the embassy. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, it was just like this really weird, uh, as I said, that, you know, ugliness, vengeance of the winners, and people were, they were going around to the homes of the Chavez ministers, the cabinet ministers, and pulling them out and saying, you're under arrest for, you know, basically nothing. And all I mean, this was just, the next day. like Yeah, this day. was like the next day. This was third, yeah, Friday and Saturday, next two days. By the end of Saturday, though, people were starting to, you know, there was international pressure, too. Um, the Organization of American States said, well, wait a minute, we, you know, where is Chavez and where is his resignation letter? We want, you know, we want to see this, what's going on there. Um, so there's international pressure started to build. Um, some people were calling um, CNN uh, in Espanol in Atlanta, Georgia, it denounced this is a coup, this is a coup, uh, you know, including Chavez's daughter. You know, she said, my father is, is gone, he's missing, you know, where is he? Uh, this is just a coup. coup. Um, so the tide sort of started to return uh, by late Saturday and into Saturday night. Eventually, the new government realized um, this wasn't going to hold. That was they were on really shaky legal ground, um, and they were just. And the other thing was the military didn't like what these the new president Carmona had done. They he he. Hadn't kept to the Constitution, you know. He dissolved Congress and the Supreme Court, um, so he, they were like, "Well, what's going on here? We didn't, you know, get rid of Chavez to put a dictator in." Um, so they were pressuring this new government, and the, as I said, the international pressure was growing. So eventually, it's sort of, I think, late Saturday night, the tide started to turn, and they realized this was untenable, and they all went like fled the palace. And it was actually like takeover. Then the cabinet, the Chavez ministers, like plotted to retake the palace using this underground tunnel into the palace. And they actually <laughs> got some uh, soldiers and whatnot who, uh, and they all like stormed into the palace and retook the palace. And the other yeah. people had, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just, just like crazy. a chaotic mess everywhere. Like this whole yeah, this story, mess. that story. Yeah, so the other, you know, the new cabinet, the new government people, they all just, like, fled. They knew this was, you know, untenable. So by Sunday, um, they were looking for the vice president, the Chavez's vice president, who had gone into hiding, you know, because he thought he saw everybody getting pulled out of their houses and then was afraid. So they had to find him and bring him back in. And um, I think they swore in, actually, I think, at that point, they swore in, I think he was the former, uh, the, the head of the National Congress, National Assembly. Um, I was going to say quickly, I, that ambulance makes it kind of eerie as you just talk about this overthrowing, <laughs> this chaos, all this stuff. I know, that's siren. <laughs> I live between two hospitals. It's really kind of a noisy, uh, noisy location sometimes. 
So anyway, so now there was a, he had another president in. Uh, then they found the vice president, finally brought him in, swore him in as the legit president, interim president, while they located Chavez. Finally, they found him. He was prisoner, being held prisoner on a small, uh, a tiny little island off the Venezuelan coast. Uh, there was a small Navy base there called Orchila Island. Um, and by the end of Sunday, you know, they were trying to get the get government back in and um, and Chavez came flying in on a helicopter and greeted this thousands of people had surrounded the palace at that point waiting for him and the helicopter landed and then he came out on a balcony and greeted the you know the people to a roaring roaring uh, cheers so that was the that was the coup you know <laughs> it was like this five day four you know the four day uh, coup uh, and it was just, I mean, it was just crazy. Um, in the following days, uh, that wasn't the end of the story, though. It emerged that the people who had fired those initial shots on the marchers were hardline right-wing uh, people who were uh, snipers. And it was a military um, sort of setup. They put snipers on the, these big buildings, you know, like uh, office buildings, to fire on the crowd to create chaos or to to convince the military to act and move against Chavez. So they shot and at you, their own people. They shot at their own people, right. Wow, because yeah, I forgot, you never, um like you said, everybody thought it was the pro-Chavez people that shot, and then you like kept right. going on in the story. It's like, wow. So right, because that was a natural assumption. It's like, you know, you wouldn't assume that the same side was shooting on you, you know, and there were yeah. all these people gathered on this overpass, and you know, so people thought they were shooting and uh, and all this, and but it actually turned out that it was this very you know hard hardline right wing uh, element in the military um, who wanted to take back you know the government and Chavez, and they had set this whole thing up. Um, and if they so control I the media too, they could like go press it on like, oh look, the uh, pro Chavez are like shooting at us plus oh yeah that's and that's what happened um the, the the media because it was owned by a lot of you know very wealthy um families uh and they were largely against chavez uh they just you know when this happened it was just they they hammered that was the nail that they kept hammering on you know after the march and into the night and this happened and how could he have done this? And he was supposed to be the people's president and he fired on a peaceful march. They were constitutional, exercised their constitutional right. This is a democracy, blah, blah, blah. So that was this constant thing over the, you know, over the airwaves. Um, and it turned out, yeah, it was all a big, big setup. It was a really, uh, really the word that comes to mind is dastardly move, you know, it's just a very evil sort of a thing. Um, so that's why and I think after that, the, the opposition to Chavez just sort of really, it was, you know, so ashamed. I mean, it was such a shameful thing to do. They've never really recovered. You know, they're just not very strong. Uh, you know, we still haven't, uh, we yeah, never able to get them That's a huge bombshell. Out. Yeah. So that's the story of the 2002 uh, coup. But uh and it was just crazy for me. I was, you know, my phone was ringing off the hook from people that, you know, wanted to know what was going on from different media outlets. And I was on the radio and, you know, filling in different reporters. And because it, it was just a constantly changing situation at that, uh, at that point. I bet. And people yeah, couldn't get like... in. The airport was closed. 
you know, I learned a lot about how, how to do a coup, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to get control of the, the ingress and egress of the country, shut down airports and the borders. You have to get control of the media and start, like, you know, putting out the, the mass media, you know, on radio, TV, putting out your, your propaganda. And, of course, you know, get the military. So if you want to start your own, you know exactly what to do. Right, I know what to do. It's coup, control. It's coup 101. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but you uh, and you kind of have to, uh, yeah. And, and again, I think that the big thing was it might might just have worked, I guess, if if he hadn't, if Carmona hadn't done that move with the you know dissolving uh, Congress and the, the court. But uh, it, it probably would have lasted a little bit longer. But you know, again, the tide was. The whole legality of it was so suspect because there was no resignation letter. And then it turned out that there was no resignation letter. He had never officially resigned. And that was the other thing, too. You know, he said he, he verbally said he would resign because he was getting pressured. This is what he said later. But he never signed anything. He said, I, I never signed anything. So it was never official. That's why. No, he, he never. Right. Exactly. I heard also while he was in prison. He uh, wrote down, I never resign or something similar like that, and then threw the paper in the trash can. Yes, he, he left. He, he, I think he, he did do that. He says he, he left a message there. Um, he wasn't sure when um, later on he said, you know, I thought when they were taking him to this island, he said, I thought they were going to push me out of a helicopter. You know, he's like, this is it. They're just going to push me into the sea because that had been done in Argentina. You know, they would do that with political enemies during in the 1980s. The army would just take people, you know, in a helicopter and just, you know, push them overboard. He said, I, I didn't know if I was going to live. Um, That's harsh, yeah. too. Not even like a, I feel like it'd be easier to have a line up and just have them get shot. That's like, if you survive that, that's a bit much. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty brutal. Which I was going to ask, too. Why not, um, do an assassination or execute it. Wouldn't that have been a easier for the uh, people trying to run the coup? You know, perhaps. And 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 again, Chavez claimed that he, that he had uncovered and and actually the current president, Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro. You know, every often, every so often, he'd claim that they had covered uncovered this assassination plot, but they never named names or details. It, it always seemed very sort of just a propaganda type thing. Um, but yeah, I'm sure they considered many things, but they were trying to do it under this guise of sort of like, you know, uh, some sort of constitutionality, like that the military acted because they wanted constitutional order and they felt Chavez had violated human rights and violated the constitution by ordering, um, you know, the marchers shot. That's, you know, they wanted to create this veneer of constitutionality about it. They would have lost their quotation, uh, moral high ground. Right, exactly. They wanted to do the. They wanted to keep that moral high ground, which you know actually turned out to be extremely low. Um, I mean, yeah, shown into your own crowd. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty, pretty evil sort of a plot. And um, did that work? Like you said, you they want to do that to try to bring the military in. Did that end up bringing the military in, or did they? Still it did. Yeah, it certainly did. You know, and and they got the the, the generals. Uh, you know, that's why the generals went to visit Chavez that night and, you know, pressuring him to resign and said, listen, you, you, you did this, you ordered the military, the National Guard or whoever it was to shoot on this, you know, you don't deserve to be president, you know, you can't violate the Constitution. So it did, it did sort of, it, it did prove to be the lever. 
Um, and of course, there were people, you know, there was circles of generals aligned with this who were pushing that, you know, within the within the military, within the generals as well, saying, we can't allow it, you know, we've got to move against him, we've got to move against him as part of the plot uh, to instigate the, the move. So, yeah, you couldn't make this stuff up, really. So it, it, was, a, it was an incredible um, time, and uh, I think that was the, the best story I've ever covered in my journalistic career was the coup. <laughs> and you were there, like, perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was really, uh, it was something. Yeah, like while you were in there, uh, you want to stay safe, but were um, anything you can tell me about like being on the ground in that country during that time? Yeah, you just had to, you know, just say you were press, you were press. Um, they didn't have a lot, you know, actually Venezuelans were very pro-American and European. Um, and Chavez started to turn, that tide started to turn. He, you know, hated Bush and he would always call the, the imperialist Yankees and that kind of thing. But still, I didn't, I never felt threatened or, or afraid in Venezuela. I really didn't. Did you see any of like the looting or riots around you or were they in like different towns over? They were in different sections of the city. I did see them, you know, because I was driving around trying to get, you know, what was going on on the ground. So I was driving around and trying to look at what, uh, what was going on. Um, so I did see them, yeah. You know, a uh, guy, young young man with sort of the T-shirts over their heads so you couldn't, dis in disguise, it, you know, just their eyes were peeked out and they were running around saying, where's Chavez, you know, we want Chavez, we want Chavez and burning tires in the street and that kind of thing. Wow. And also I heard uh, that Chavez, he called up Castro as, like before he finally lost power for that, for those five days, he called up Castro to ask his opinion on what he should do. Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah, he did, apparently. Yeah, he called him, and he called the Catholic bishop, actually, one of the bishops that he... He wasn't a friend of the Catholic Church, but the bishop came. Uh, he trusted him as a mediator. He would be like a, a sort of a mediator between these the military pushing him to leave. Um, and he did call Fidel Castro, and uh, that's right. Yeah. So how did... Like, I was young. I was maybe five, six at that time. How did the mm -hmm. world react to this from like, yeah, how did the world react? Yeah, I think everybody was pretty shocked, you know. Um, and Venezuela is a, a world oil player. Uh, so this affected world oil markets and, and, and all that sort of thing. So it had that, uh, that effect. So it was an, an important thing to pay attention to. Um, and it had been a democracy for a long time. Um, and was a stalwart, you know, democratic influence in, in Latin America, actually. Um, so this was really, you know, quite a shock. But, you know, again, they, there had been that coup attempt, Chavez's previous coup attempt in 92, and, and different things that had gone on there, of instability. But, uh, yeah, people the, were pretty shocked, you know. And the U.S. endorsed the new president. Yes, and that, of course, was highly embarrassing to the Bush government when it it turned out that actually they were the first ones to recognize the the uh, the new government, and then it turns out it was all a you know a, an illegitimate government and a you know, complete you know, farce of a of a coup plot. Um, <clears throat> but again, that was one of the reasons why they had to the opponents had to create this veneer of constitutionality over this 
this sort of overthrow so they could, you know, get, so countries like the United States would recognize them. You know, if, if it was a clear cut, you know, sort of military coup and blood in the streets, nobody's going to recognize them. You know, it's, it's at that point. So they had to create this, this facade uh, to gain international support. Uh, that was the other, you know. Yeah, you got to put up that fake image, sort of. I see that. Right, that, you know, it was Chavez's fault. He was the, he had violated human rights and fired on his own people and blah, blah, blah. And um, after he finally, he comes back, he takes his power back. How did he uh, react? Did he throw anybody in prison or anything? Or did he sort of try to kick them back? Well, his, his big line was, I have to, you know, I made a mistake. I have to govern for all people. I have to bring, you know, this is a time of reconciliation and, and peace. And, and again, he was very clear about just governing for, you know, his people were the poor people and he didn't really care about the rest. Um, and uh, so he sort of made these very conciliatory um, remarks, but, you know, it, it didn't last long. I mean, it was just back to normal and back to business as usual. And, and then he became actually much more hardline leftist and socialist and began saying he was on a socialist agenda. You know, he forgot about this, you know, medium striking a middle ground kind of uh, line. And after that, he became much more hardline. So it likely radicalized him. Yes, it sort of radical, exactly. It radicalized him a little bit. And they just start to try to take more control of everything, like, the oil and yes. cure everything and kind of yep, oh, he, he overdid took, it by that point yeah he he kicked out the the foreign oil companies did get kicked out again um uh he nationalized a lot of businesses um you know basically did kind of follow the fidel castro uh playbook gotcha. and um how long did he rule to and like what's the final end of his presidency well, he then he, he actually died in office. He uh, was in two, I think it was 2010. He had cancer. What was odd? He never. They never said. They never announced what kind of cancer it was. He went for treatment in Cuba uh, a couple times for I, I guess some kind of radiation or whatever. But they never really said what you know his cancer was. They said it was something in the abdomen. So it was always very this hush hush thing. Uh, so he died in office. Um, which sort of made him even more, you know, of a myth and a, a legend. Because um, that was the other thing that, you know, after the coup, he became stronger than ever in the eyes of his supporters. They were like convinced he was the, you know, there was nothing that was going to knock him down. You know, they tried, but they couldn't do it. He came back, you know, the cat with nine lives kind of thing. Um, and then when he died, he sort of handpicked his successor, which was uh, this guy Maduro, who was a former bus driver and uh, leader of a bus driver's union. And uh, Maduro is still in power today, and the country is a nightmare. It's just a, a, a basket case. Five million people have left, um, many who could, to Miami, um, to Colombia. There's uh, people just walking, trying to get out. There's no food. Uh, electricity is in short supply, a lot of uh, electricity rationing. Um, it's just uh, just a shame. It's just an absolute nightmare. So what I hear is they used to have the third biggest economy, lots of oil. Chavez comes like they had a lot of poverty, so it sounds good that he helped them out, started putting some new policies in tech, but then he becomes radicalized. And so what 
so where does what finally resulted in what you just said like now from third richest to now pure poverty and everybody's leaving. yeah i think well number one he did not stamp out corruption i i don't know there's no sort of um evidence that chavez himself was personally corrupt although there may be that i don't know of but but people around him certainly were and um they started again you know looting the the coffers of the venezuelan um government for themselves, uh, doing all kinds of schemes and kickbacks and all kinds of things. Uh, another thing that they, the, the military started allowing the Colombian uh, guerrillas um, and cocaine cartels to use Venezuelan territory as a, tra as a transport, transshipment point, and they would pay off um, you know, the, the Venezuelan government people or whoever to look the other way, you know, as, to use Venezuela as a transshipment point. Um, you know, uh, I mean, just vast economic mismanagement, just absolute mismanagement. And the more, you know, I mean, it's sort of like many socialist countries that nationalize a lot of businesses, the businesses just, you know, fall to pieces. I mean, they're just not well run. They become like you know, political patronage uh, deposits, you know, people just use them for uh, their own, their own uh, ends enrich themselves. And I think that's just what happened. I mean, just, and there was no investment back in the oil industry. Well, you know, one of the things that the oil industry had, they would put a lot of money back into the oil industry to, you know, do further exploration, do maintenance, you, you know, all that equipment and refineries need a lot of maintenance. Um, they just didn't do that. They just took the money um, and gradually, you know, disintegrated. So they're, they're the most corrupt in the world, that whole area. America, we have our own little bits of corruption. I mean, we're still nothing like that, but we still have our own little bits here and there. Mm -hmm. And we're a great e economy powerhouse, like in the whole world, we're top tier. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're some of the most unequal where you see, I saw a thing of the stock market, 0.01%. Well, the bottom 50% of the population owns point, I think 0.07% of the stock market or some minuscule. There's some whole like the top one percent have made this increase while the bottom fifty percent has lost five hundred billion stuff like that. So how do we? Is there a way to sort of flatten that out, like Chavez wanted to do with his country, without having us turn into his country? Um, well, you know, it's it's you know, there's no question that the United States is getting more of an unequal. Um, society and an equitable society is getting harder to, to to do the traditional thing of you know doing better than your father your parents did you know than your dad did kind of a thing it's it's not that true anymore um yeah i mean it's i think the whole pandemic has, has highlighted that too um the, the haves and the have-nots um the type of jobs uh and the lack of social safety net um you know in europe they do not have the vast uh inequitable wealth. There's certainly wealthy people and poor people, but there's much more of a social safety net. Whereas, for example, you know, they have national health. Uh, everybody, everybody has health care. You know, uh, the government provides health care. Uh, here, that's not the case. Uh, so people, a lot of people don't have good health care. Um, you know, and things like that. Uh, there's more housing, you know, subsidized housing for people. Here, you know, it's in great... Um, great demand, you know, any kind of government housing uh, program is, is the demand far outstrips the supply. 
Um, so all these kind of social um, supports that could support that could support a more equitable society, we don't have here. It's a much more individualistic sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of society. And it's, uh, it's getting increasingly hard to do that, though. Gotcha. Makes sense. All right. Well, I think going to end it there. There is uh, one more question I forgot to say before, but when Castro was, uh, not Castro, when Chavez was on the news saying, like, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, I heard he uh, was wearing, like, a referee outfit. And he had a whistle yes. and he would, <laughs> yes. he would blow yes, it. Yes, I forgot I'd forgotten that detail. That's absolutely yes. He had a whistle. And so he would blow his whistle, uh, blow the whistle like a referee whistle and say, You're out. You know, he was actually a huge baseball fan, you know. Uh yes, he would blow the whistle uh and say, you know, like you're out, you're you're fired. And the whistle would go. That's it. that's true. Yeah. I mean, it wow. just added to the circus. You know this bizarre circus. Atmosphere. That's the beginning of the chaos, I guess. Um, yeah, that's what sort of tipped it off. Yeah, that was sort of the tipping point. Um, and again, it was a, it was a, you know, an, an extreme action. You know, done for theater more than more than anything. Um, but that tipped off the the strike. That tipped off the, the the oil worker strike. That tipped off the you know general strike. That tipped off the huge march. And then you know this plan that moved into action. Uh, whatever side you're on, well, if you're pro Chavez at uh, in the country at that time, and I see him doing that, I'm thinking, wow, this guy's a legend. <laughs> exactly, it just you know cemented him as a legend. Yeah, myth. Yeah, it's just one of those like, like you said, it's yourself, like one of those things for show. That's just like, mm -hmm. wow, this guy. Like even in like America, Donald Trump. Yeah, I'm not gonna get political, but not too fond of him. Mm -hmm. but he'll do a little thing here and there that I'm like that doesn't help the country but you know that's kind of cool I'll give him that <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah I mean um, it's, it, it was pretty fun I did actually write a piece about comparing Chavez and Trump I wrote an article it was, it was actually a lot of fun to write and uh, you know completely antithetical uh, you know politically one's you know right and one's left but a lot of similarities in the way they governed you know and do things and, and behave so is there some like is there some kind of horseshoe theory to it where like you're so far away that you eventually come back around yeah that's what i would i would say exactly when you're when you're at the extreme of either you know political uh uh end you're actually very much alike <laughs> sort of like a big circle you know <laughs> sounds good what's the name of that piece again it's just called what is it uh the Autocrats Playbook, Eight Parallels Between Trump, Trump, Trump and Chavez. It's on my medium.com uh, site. So I can send you a link. Sounds good. I'll put a, a link in the description for the show yeah. with your website yeah. too. Is there anything, yeah. um, I'll say a final question, but first, is there anything for the audience for where to find you? Uh, you can look me up on my website at christinahogue.com and uh, there's you know, more about me and my a couple novels I've written and, and some links to articles and uh, readings and all that kind of stuff. Sounds good. And yeah, for the audience, you'll see that in the description. But first, what's the final message or the final thing you want to tell the audience? 
Well, it's just, it's, it's very dangerous to be, a, to have a polarized society. And that's where I fear we're going. And that's, I think the legacy of Trump is that he has really polarized the political um, society, political, uh, you know, atmosphere in the United States that we're now, it, it's just become, there's almost like no middle ground. I mean, you know, even even on COVID uh, pandemic relief, you know, they, they can't, they, both sides can't even seem to agree on that. And it's, it's dangerous. It's a really dangerous precedent. We're still one country. We're not, we don't need a civil war or anything. Yeah, exactly. All right. All right. Well, thank you again very much for coming out to the show. No, well, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, hope you enjoyed it. Sounds good. I definitely did. And for the audience, this was, again, the 2002 Venezuelan Coup. Uh, FM 91.7 WHUS stores at the top of the hour. For more, go to podcasttheway.com. Follow on Twitter, Instagram. This is my first time saying it, but give it a five-star on Apple Podcasts if you can. Let me see if that does anything. <laughs> Again, podcasttheway.com. And as always, deuces. Deuces.